Welcome to episode six of the Work Redefined podcast, where we believe your employees are your company's most valuable asset. We are all navigating uncharted waters and need to bridge the generational gap. For the first time in history, there are now five generations in the workforce who all view the world differently. And our goal is to help leaders look at the world of work through a new lens so they can elevate their business and recruit and retain their talent. Hi, I'm Kelsey Buell, and today I am so excited to be joined by the one and only Mike Zani. Mike is the Wall Street Journal's best-selling author of The Science of Dream Teams. He also coached the 1996 U.S. Olympic sailing team, where he was named Coach of the Year for the sport of sailing. After his career as a sailing coach, he attended Harvard Business School. And he is now the CEO of the Predictive Index, a well-renowned behavioral assessment company. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for doing this conversation with me today. I am so thrilled to have you, and I know all of our listeners are going to get so much out of this conversation. So why don't we just kick off by you sharing a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Kelsey, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to meet your audience. Uh, who am I? That's a, that's a, that's a big question. It's sort of, I'm a former professional sailor, Olympic sailing coach, who fell off the sailing roadmap into business accidentally and fell in love with business. And randomly, I applied to three business schools, got rejected from two, but was lucky enough to get into Harvard Business School. So, and I, I don't know how it happened. They shouldn't have let me in. But I, I, I met my business partner. I met my business model. Uh, which is buying used companies with other people's money. And I randomly stumbled onto the predictive index as a client at our first company that we purchased and it helped us turn it around. So I, I really feel like I have a dream job because I get to work on people, talent related issues and creating dream teams. Hmm. Well, on that note, and I actually have it next to me right here, the, um, the science of dream teams, you wrote an incredible book. I've loved not only cruising through it, but also going back and reviewing some of the various concepts. But one of the concepts that really struck me right off the bat was the front of the t-shirt back of the t-shirt concept that you wrote about. And so would you mind just sharing us, sharing with us a little bit more about what that is? I'd love to. First, I have to give credit to, to Jim Allen. He is a partner at Bain Consulting in the UK office, and this is his framework. And it, it is really a, a framework about self-awareness and development where he, he came up with it when, when partners or managers at Bain, when they're about to become partner. And if you, you probably have worked five years after business school, work like a dog at Bain and you want to become partner because when you become partner, that is your key to making a lot more money and sort of having almost like tenure, if you will. And his, his premise was that by the time you get five years into Bain and company, you have a long front of t-shirt, all the things that you add value to the world, 
most of the reasons why you got jobs. And it's not the front of t-shirt things are lacking. It's that the back of t-shirt, the things that you're not as aware of, the things that people will say about you when you're not in the room or when you're walking away from them, these things that hold you back from being you on your best day, those are the elements on the back of t-shirt. And when I first heard of this model, my wife was doing consulting. She was a former Bainey and she was consulting for, for Bain doing leadership and development consult, consulting, much like you do. And she says, oh my God, I've ran into this new framework. And I was like, oh my God, I got to know what's on the back of my t-shirt. So I, I totally went on this mission to find out what was on the back of my t-shirt and hired a coach and went on this mission of discovery. And I was horrified to find out how much stuff was actually on the back of my t-shirt. So it's this really, it's this fun framework that makes it very clear. And I think has a lot of implications in, in business and development and personal development, as well as culture development. So tell me more about, I guess, any recommendations for leaders out there as far as how they can go about discovering in the same way that you did, what is on the back of their t-shirt? Like what are the, maybe some tangible recommendations that you might offer? Well, certainly if, 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 you're, if you're a CEO type and you're in the C-suite, you can definitely get a coach and they have an objective view. And most people don't have the luxury of doing that, the time or the, or the money to go do that. And I think it was, you know, back in 2006, it was like a $5,000 spend and it was well worth it. So if you want to do that, great. But for a, a lot of managers, leaders, that they're not going to be able to do that, you can glean it from your own 360 reviews. And you can, you can certainly, we have employees. And when, when you do a 360, take a red pen and a green pen and read the whole thing and underline front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt themes, or just snippets. It can be in your scores, your quantitative scores. It could be in your qualitative comments and try and come up with themes and don't shortchange the front. It's important. You, you really need to play most of your life, most of the game of life and business with the skills on the front, because that's what you're really good at. But you need to also understand what's on the back. And some of my uh, employees, direct reports, skip level, will often do, if they, if they haven't done a 360 in a while, you could do anonymous Google form and just send, your, send to the people who you work with. You go, I'm trying to figure out what's on the back of my t-shirt, what's on the front of my t-shirt. Would you mind taking 10 minutes to fill this out? Some of the things that you know, are superlatives and some of the things that are really glaring things that I need to be working on. And just collecting that data, uh, starting this process of developing a real list, a hard list, it's not hard to do. And it's, it's never something that you, you actually are ever pencils down on. You always have to keep working on it. So I don't want to make um, the assumption that, and I, I'm hoping that most leaders know what a 360 review is, but um, would you mind just explaining a little bit more what you mean by that terminology in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with that concept? Certainly would love to. There's, there's a lot of 360 review software, but a lot of people do 360 reviews in SurveyMonkey or Excel or some, some, some other way, shape or form. But you're getting a 360 degree view into a person. So 
if you're the C level, you needed you needed Canvas, the board of directors, you know, the peers. Not that the CEO has many peers, but in the C-suite, the CFO, the COO, president, uh, chief chief growth officers, revenue officers, and then direct reports. And sometimes you can even go skip level if they have enough interaction. But you're looking for six to ten data points, people data points, giving you a, a look into this person. And it usually is some number of questions, could be 60 quantitative scored questions, and then usually open text fields where you can explain either your scores or anything that needs further explaining. And when you look at the full download of these reports, you, you get a lot of data and you also get you know, great commentary and it's typically anonymous. Um, it's not always anonymous, Sort of when I, whenever I fill out a 360 on someone, I go non-anonymous. I want them to know what my comments are. So I have to answer it appropriately so that they know who wrote it. But sometimes it's anonymous. So people can really be honest with, you know, I like these things, but these things really bother me. And you can tell by the quality of the comments, whether they put time into the review and thought or whether they were sort of doing it you know, on the fly, some some corporate cultures really value them and, and others don't. One, one important caveat about 360s, you need to make sure 360s are not tied to compensation or promotion. You have to do it off cycle with promotion and compensation. This is about personal development because if it's about comp and or promotion, people won't be honest. They won't go on that journey. This is really about I'm working on me. And, and, and I think that's why front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt can really help. Because when the bosses say, listen, I've got stuff I'm working on and it's okay. I want your help with working on these things. I want you to identify when I'm doing it. That you create an environment where openness, transparency, and vulnerability are okay. So in your opinion, Mike, do you feel most leaders you're in contact with are open to doing this? And or if not, do you feel that not being willing to find out what's on the back of your t-shirt, does that negatively impact being a leader? Uh, maybe expand on that a little bit more. Well, I, I do think there are leaders that are certainly very closed off and that won't show vulnerability. And it, I would call it a little old school. And I don't mean to just, you know, throw shade on the generation that came before us because everything they did was, was, was not bad. It was just typical of the time. When you worked for larger companies and you had longer tenure at companies, instead of, you might have average five to 10 years, not two to three at a company, that you were climbing the ladder. And you wanted to make sure that you kept your, your uh, reputation sort of clean. So I think there was an environment where people weren't willing to, to do that and be vulnerable. But I, I see CEOs and senior leaders who are running huge, meaningful companies, and they're very open. They're very transparent. Aaron Ain, who is the CEO of Ultimate Kronos Group, which is a, you know, multi-billion dollar company in revenue is incredibly open and transparent and is always working on 
you know, his own personal development and is, 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 is creates an environment in his organization that is enviable, that people really want to work for him because he's real. And I, I think leaders who create this environment of openness, transparency and vulnerability will create that in a culture. So people who work for them will say, if you're willing to do it, I'll, I'll go there with you. And it, and it creates this, it's okay. Hmm. Well, and that kind of leads me into thinking about now the predictive index. And um, a lot of companies have been talking about the great resignation, but I know specifically at PI, uh, the organization is focused on how can we create a great retention. And I think it speaks to what you just mentioned about creating these environments that people just want to work at. Um, so from a standpoint of creating a great retention, can you tell us more about what that initiative means and how uh, maybe what some of the recommendations and tools are that you're um, recommending companies do and use in order to better retain their talent? I, I think all, all companies are suffering from higher churn. Mm -hmm. So retention is being more challenging and, and there's many issues. We obviously had changed in work styles. We had a scary pandemic. We had a lot of social issues that have, have, have really, you know, blossomed in the last 18 months that people are becoming more aware of and people are trying to find more meaning in what they do. So I'm not trying to say it's not happening. But what I am saying is that the companies that are good might have lost, they might have gone from 5% churn to 10, but the bad companies went from 20% churn to 60% churn. So the spread just exploded. So I'm encouraging companies, wherever they are on this curve, is to very actively try and address this issue because a, a five to 10 point gain on, on retention is going to save you so much time, money, recruiting effort, uh, lost productivity. It's, it's, it's really powerful. And it, it's going to start not with a policy. It's going to start with every single manager in your company, anyone who manages people, approaching people one-on-one, -on -one, trying to find out how are you doing? You know, where, where are you at with engagement? Is it, are you, do you feel like you're a good fit for your job? Are, are we working well together as, as manager boss? And if, and if we're not, you don't feel comfortable, here's, here's someone you can talk to about that because I really want you to be happy. And if that means finding a, a new manager or we work through some things, we will. So job manager and then their team, making sure that they're working well with their team and feel like they can be themselves on the team. And lastly, fit with company and culture. It, if, if, if you look at those things, you know, job manager, team, you know, company and culture, that you can find the sources, potential sources of disengagement and really address them. Because this isn't a policy. This isn't about changing your time out. This isn't about changing. It, maybe it could be, a litmus test issue, like I'm only working remote from now on and my company doesn't do that. And some companies aren't going to change that policy. So, but for the most part, it is not an engage. It is not a single policy issue. It's about re-engaging people into loving what they do again. 
And it, it's only going to happen if you take those obstacles out of the way, whether it's fit with job, fit with manager, fit with team, or fit with company culture. So is there anything you're finding as far as why people are transitioning out or why are people leaving at this alarming rate? There is, there is a couple of, 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 of real things. You know, obviously we, 18, 20 months ago, we abused our workforce harder than we've ever abused it since World War II. We, you know, laid off 40 million people or furloughed. We asked people to work remotely. Uh, we lost our corporate, our cultures um, or elements of them. We, people who had to come to work still were in fear because they had to work with, you know, special equipment that they weren't familiar with, scared for themselves, for their families. And, and then we come back to work and it's not the same and it's never going to be the same. You're, you're not coming back to the same fuzzy office you used to have. You know, offices are, are empty. Uh, things have changed. People have left. And then you, you throw on top of this um, issues, um, social issues, that people are trying to find meaning again. They're like, I just got, there are things more important than work right now, like the health of my family and these social issues. So people are definitely digging deeper saying, I'm not as happy with my business or my work. And I want to find more purpose and meaning in what I do. And those two combinations are, 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 are really the one-two punch. Now, on the other side of things, recruiters are making a ton of money right now. Recruiters are causing a war. They are hunting like they've never hunted before. We are in, we are in a war for talent 2.0 and it is about stealing employees. And it, it actually, the inflation and wage inflation is real. You know, people are coming in and saying, I'll pay you 10% more. I do not care. Mm-hmm. So that is a tough environment. Um, when we, you abuse the workforce, you change the culture, you make mission more important, and then you throw money in recruiters who are hunting in your, in your pond, it, it is a challenging environment. Mm, so many good um, thoughts right there, Mike. My mind is going to all in all different directions right now, but one of the things that I thought I would ask a little bit more about is from what I can tell, it seems like the, the predictive index really lives out its mission, both externally, but also internally. Um, I know, I think I saw a uh, photo of a pumpkin carving <laughs> of your face not too long ago that there was some sort of pumpkin carving competition, or I don't know what that was, but tell us more about what you're doing internally to keep that engagement high, especially if there, there's a lot of your employees that are working remote. I mean, we have an incredibly talented people operations team. Uh, led by Jackie Doobie, who is our senior vice president of talent optimization. And they put a lot of themselves into making sure the events that we do do uh, are high quality. And what you saw with the pumpkin carving contest was our office Olympics, which was truly a hybrid event. We had, um, we invented games. Uh, we did a, a, an egg obstacle course where we blindfolded a person with an egg and a spoon. And then we had a, a second person who was physically there with an iPhone on FaceTime. And we had a third person that was remote. 
who is guiding the person with the egg uh, uh, verbally. Hmm. And the person with the cell phone couldn't see this. You had to have a three-person loop to go through this tight obstacle course. And, and it was just so clever and creative. And it was really hard. And I mean, I, I'm not saying that that's what people should do. But I think the level of creativity needed as we reinvent work to get people who can't come to the office, maybe they weren't vaccinated, maybe they live too far away, maybe they're 100% remote because we're now hiring much more remote. And by the way, it's helping our, our diversity, equity, uh, you know, initiatives massively, but it's not coming back. Like, how do you, how do you create this new culture? And and our people ops team was just really thoughtful about how to engage. It wasn't perfect, um, and uh, but it was it was really fun to try. And even though it wasn't perfect, the people who were remote appreciated all of the efforts. Like all of our relay races were kicked off by a, a scavenger hunt at home. So it's like go find a whisk. You know, the first person to come back with a whisk, their team gets to go. And, and you're sort of like you know, a running relay is going to be kicked off by finding a whisk. And you're like, yeah, we couldn't think of anything else. That was funny. Well, and how, you know, how fun to do something with your employees that has nothing to do with work, right? I mean, just the creativity. And I'm sure there were some elements maybe that had to do with predictive index and everything, but that importance of kind of stepping outside of work and really bonding and connecting um, just on a different level, I think is really really cool. It is an investment to take, you know, you've got 220 days ish of productivity to, to take a complete blow off day and say, we're going to, we're going to fly people in and, and, and spend real money on a cultural uh, event. We needed it at the end of the summer. And we, we sort of did it in the early fall and we, we weren't even sure with the Delta variant, whether that was going to happen, but you know, the next time is going to be we get together is around around the holidays. Um, but Bob Glazer, who ri- writes uh, the Friday Forward, you may have heard of it, and he wrote the book uh, How to Thrive in a in a Virtual uh, Workplace. Um, he says all the money that companies are going to start saving because they don't have expensive real estate, hmm. you're going to need to start spending getting those people together period- periodically or in small groups to do the things you can't do remotely, to build, to, to build in-person contact and culture, to do some of the creative collaboration. So we're gonna be still spending money, it just might not be in a building with fancy furniture and a ping pong table. It might be, let's go to you know the Gaylord Center in Dallas and all get together and have yeah. a little bit of a work session and some, some get to know each other stuff. Some fun along the way. Um, so it brings me to another thought too. I believe in our initial conversation, we chatted briefly about this. Um, I've heard some leaders talking about how hard it is, especially in this particular leader I have in mind was in more the finance banking world where, you know, they have to have a lot of people in the building, but they're starting to allow some people to work remotely. Um, but what the barrier is, is that when I'm not just having those casual bumping into people, um, in the physical building, it's harder for me to see what their talents and skills are. And I know you and I, that's a very hard 
thing to hear. Um, but what recommendations do you have for leaders that maybe know that this is a challenge and how can they work harder to build relationships with their remote employees so that those remote employees still are seen as um, equals, if you will, to the people that are physically in the office? You know, it, it's interesting. They've been doing some great surveying on people who like being in the office, people who um, like being remote and people who are comfortable, okay, with some sort of hybrid. The people who like being in the office the most were the people who used to manage by walking around. Mm. And manage by walking around is, is a defined um, term. If you Google it, you'll, you'll, fi you'll, you'll find out about it. But this is people who observe and make sure work is getting done and they, they're, they're seen and there's some form of accountability and check-ins. But the people who did that haven't found as good of a replacement for that and they lost some power. Mm. And interestingly, th that's a terrible reason to bring everyone back into the office for the you know 10% of people who used to do that. And I actually was not a huge managed by walking around person, but I did do that. So I used to casually see people from other departments, say hello, um, maybe use it as an opportunity to, to dive a little deeper with them. You now have to schedule that time. Mm -hmm. You have to be really planful about this with your one-on-ones. You know, if I'm doing a one-on-one -on -one with you, you know, I have to make sure that I'm asking the personal issues. How are you doing? How's your family? You're like, uh, you know, you did a remodel, right? Is, is that finished? Is it going well? You know, are you ready to kill your, your partner yet? <laughs> because it's not going well, you know, and these are the things really finding out how people are doing and taking the time and being proactive and scheduling it. And it doesn't come naturally for everybody. And then making sure that you're not just being insular with my five people, but making sure that you are reaching out, say, Hey, I, I really liked what you said. And a meeting two days ago. Would you mind if we tried to grab just 10 minutes to catch back up? I haven't seen you in a long time. And, and, and do these things. But people are not wanting to come back to work. Productivity is high. They don't want to give back their commute time. And, and frankly, offices right now are really inefficient. People want, they're like, oh my God, Kelsey, it's so good to see you. Let's chat for five minutes about random stuff. And you're like, I'm kind of busy at the moment, you know, but that's happening as we go back to the office and um, people are wondering, why am I coming? Mm -hmm. Do I need to be here? From a behavioral assessment standpoint, and I know um, you, we talk with Predictive Index about various drives. Are you finding that um, there are any nuances in people who are more... Um, like extroverted or want to talk a lot? Are they the ones that are going back to the office or are they the ones that are staying home? Like, are you finding any similarities between the different types of um, drives that people have and their work preferences? Yeah, certainly uh, low extroversion, high patience, high formality. Um, you know, people who have smaller spheres, like less interruption and tend, tend to... Um, want to communicate more, more plan, you know, planfully or predictably like, oh, we're meeting at this time with an agenda. They're enjoying more aspects of the structure that remote work has brought. 
Whereas, you know, people who are more spontaneous, more, more verbal, a little lower formality are, you know, enjoy the casual interaction and, uh, oh, let's bump into each other and have a good, you know, water, the old water cooler conversation. So we, we are seeing that. Is it, it, it isn't one pattern that is succeeding and one pattern that is failing. Um, but what's interesting is the, the you, you, there are workarounds in that if, if, you, if you like to hide and keep your head down, you can, you can do that pretty effectively. But if you, if you like to connect with people, you can do that proactively. Um, but you, you do have to um, work at it in these new environments. And it's more about scheduling. And one of the things that we, we've done is it's so easy to go back to back to back to back. So we, we've spent a lot of time about doing smart meetings at men and five minutes or 10 minutes early, depending on if it's a half an hour or an hour, making sure that people have time to, to get water and go to the bathroom, make sure that it's okay for people to block off work times, you know, work quiet times on their calendar. And we're even doing experiments with, you know, no meeting blocks either in hours of the day or for half and full days. And just, we have to coordinate it. Cause if, if every department had a no meeting day on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so you could never have a, you could never have a meeting across the company. Mm -hmm. um, you, you do need some top-down coordination, but these things are really effective. And when you give people the free space, so they're not back to back to back, they will do those things like, I'm gonna reach out to you, Kelsey. We haven't connected in a while because you, you, you might, you say, hey, Kelsey, can we, can we do a working lunch? Kind of, we'll grab peanut butter and jelly and I'll meet you at 12.15. And, you know, you can catch up. And, and some people are doing that very successfully. Hmm. Yeah, I like that you spoke to that fact of um, because you're remote, you should schedule more, probably more touch points with people. But then there's this flip side of death by meetings and having too many meetings that are um, more meetings just to meet. So that that balance is, is difficult. Um, but tell me more, you mentioned smart meetings. What is that? Well, smart meetings is, it's a function in either Outlook or Google Calendar where you can, uh, you can actually turn on smart meetings. And what it does is if you're gonna schedule a half an hour meeting, it schedules it say nine to 9.25. It hmm. doesn't schedule it nine to 9.30 and ends that meeting five, minute, five minutes early. And it gives you transition time to you know, take notes, recap, and then get ready for your next meeting, get some water, um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe take a bio break if you need it or, and we try and do it at five and 10 minutes and we, we you know, 10 minutes for the hour long meeting. So someone could have a 10 minute break, you know, you can walk outside, um, you can see the sunshine, even mm -hmm. for just a few minutes and, you know, and stretch and get ready. And I actually, try and not have more than three back-to-backs. You know, if I have more than three back-to-back -back meetings, it, you know, you start getting short and cranky. I mean, it's, it's tough to stay on. And people are realizing it's okay to turn off video. You don't always need it. And it takes so much more of your processing power to, mm -hmm. to do that. So we've, we've really encouraged people to take walking meetings. If you and I were gonna catch up for a half an hour, and we had, we didn't, 
I've even said to someone, hey, let's share, share screen for five minutes. And then I'll call your cell phone and let's both go on a walking meeting. And uh, people are actually walking around with their no noise canceling headsets walking down the street. And that way the wind or the dogs barking don't bother you. It's great. And you feel, I mean, it doesn't work in the winter in the Northern climates, but it is, it's fantastic. And you feel so much more energized about doing this. And people have to use this level of creativity. It has to be okay. And it comes from the top. If you make it okay, you're like, yeah, let's do a walking meeting. And it's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then it catches on because someone's like, I'm doing that with my direct reports. I love um, those concepts that you just mentioned, the buffer time, um, turning off your camera sometimes, doing a walking meeting. One of the things I'm extremely passionate about is finding ways to prevent burnout. And I would say a lot of those are um, examples, you know, getting some movement in the day, um, taking breathers in between things. Are there any other tips that you would give for leaders of things that they can do to help make sure that their employees are preventing themselves from overdoing it or getting burned out? Well, it's interesting. We have an unlimited uh, PTO policy, uh, personal time off, and which, which was a real win when they first came out. The people are like, whoa, unlimited personal time off. And you're just like, listen, there's a couple things you need to do. You need to get your work done and you need to get approval. You know, 17 people in a 17 person department can't all take off the same week or things would shut down. So you have to do some coordinating. So it's not like unlimited time off whenever I want it. It's unlimited personal time off. But we're noticing people aren't using it. So we're still tracking it and we're, we're making VPs, directors, managers track this stuff. And they're, we're forcing people to take time off. You're like, you haven't taken enough time off. And we've set alarms in our HR information system to let people know that you're not you're not consuming your time off. Now, sometimes it's a mistake. You're just not, they've been taking the time off or they just haven't been recording it. But most of the time it's that people feel like, you know, they're, they're grinding and you're like, okay, Veterans Day is this Thursday, tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. This, sorry, I just gave up the time yes, stamp. That's okay. On this. That's but okay. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Thursday this year. How fantastic would it be if someone came to you today and said, you know, or maybe they should do it a little earlier. So you could have prepped, please take Friday off. That way you can have a four day weekend. Mm -hmm. You can celebrate veterans day, how you'd like to do it and not worry about coming back to work on Friday. I mean, that would make someone's cup overflow. They'd be like, yeah, thank you. That is a great idea. I would love to do that. And mm -hmm. it's really nice when it's mandated from your supervisor, the people who you report to because it, it makes it permissible. Great, that feels good. My boss made me take the day off. Now, there are some people who are totally okay. They're, they're taking plenty of time off and they might need other things. Um, but, and not every company has the luxury of doing that. If you are manufacturing, you're like, we can't give an extra day. So you have to think of what things can you give to, to make sure that your people aren't burning out. That's, that's really great. I'm glad you brought that up because now that I'm thinking about it and reflecting on the jobs that I've had um, prior to being off on my own, I don't think I ever 
have had a boss that asked me or told me, hey, you should take a day off. And I know um, that I've been known to work a lot of late hours and early mornings in my past jobs. And I've even had, you know, my boss tell me that I needed to slow down and not work as many hours, but I, that same individual didn't ever recommend a time off. So I'm just, it's really interesting as I reflect, um, on what that's looked like for me. And if we were to, you know, take a poll of, um, a number of different companies that I work with, I wonder if they are encouraging people to take time off as much as they should. So thank you for that. Oh, I, I ran into an employee who was, um, working late on, um, on Wednesdays. Like it was a, it was a deal with his family. He had not young kids, but young enough that he was really trying to be there for dinner with them most nights. And, and he, but he would say, Nope, I'm working late on Wednesdays. That's my work late day. And I was, I was looking at his work style and I was like, why are you taking one day to work, you know, till 10? He's like, it's, it's great. This is my alone time. No one's bothering me. I have no meetings. I can really grind down everything that I'm doing. And I'm like, I, well, I appreciate the effort, but we need to uncover something. You're not working effectively in the other 40 hours that you have, that you have to pack in another five hours of work that is extra and separate. And I was like, that's fine. If you want meeting time, you want to work till 10 PM on Wednesdays, but don't come in at eight, you know, and, and it, uncovering the issue of maybe this person had a work organizational scheduling structural thing that they needed to work on mm. and don't celebrate that they're grinding, figure out what the cause of that grind is and why they think they have to do it. And when we solve this problem for this person, incredibly thankful. They were like, oh my God, my spouse is happy. My kids are happy. I'm happier. And I'm actually improving on my, on my, my organization scheduling. Mm, that's amazing. And I love that concept. I think um, I've seen a number of social posts lately about how our world glorifies overworking and how we praise this concept of working long hours. Um, and I think that there's this notion that if I'm not working over 40 hours in a week, that I am not doing enough. Um, and I think that that mentality and that cycle, it, it's the ideas that you're providing are um, potential solutions for breaking that cycle. So thanks for sharing that, Mike. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and there are some cultural things. If you, if you're a, a resident at a hospital, you know, I don't approve of the process, but you know, they work whatever 40 hour shifts. It yeah. seems insane to me. And, um, you know, there are other industries, you know, you can pick investment banking, um, and certainly, you know, tax people come tax time, have, a, have, a, have a crunch, but I, I think we need to get beyond this glor glorifying it. It's, um, we, we do not live to work. We work to live and yeah. A great uh, mentor of mine, Michael Alasso, um, talks about act two. Act one is in work. That is, he, he's an actor, director, uh, you know, and that's why he uses the act one, act two. But act two is the one we work for, we get home. We need to make sure we save capacity. We save time, we save energy, we save patience. 
So when we come home, we can be every bit as good as we were in act one, even better with our act two people. Because if we come home all cranky, you know, bunged up for whatever reason, and we're short with our kids, our spouse, our siblings, our parents, then that's, that's not, that's not why we're doing things. That's, that's a real recipe for getting back to that retention issue. We have to, we have to live more sustainably with work. Mm, I love that analogy. I did a lot of um, theater growing up actually. And I just am thinking about how act two is usually the more exciting um, act because you come back from intermission, you're like, what's going to happen? And it kind of ends um, usually most uh, end on a positive note. And so thinking about how, like you said, act one can be good at you. You want act one to be really strong. Um, but act two is really the most important because that's how you're finishing. Um, I think that's so powerful. I might have to steal that and use that. Mike Lalasso, he's, he's fantastic. Um, he, his, he talks about you on your best day and how to make sure that you, you can be you on your best day every day. And he, and he really says, you have to make sure you're, you're on your best day with your act two people because they're the ones who are most important to you. Mm, that's amazing. Well, um, I want to take a, a couple last minutes as we get close to wrapping up. Um, I didn't want this episode to go by without asking about your experience as a U.S. Olympic coach for the sailing team, I just have to know um, from that experience and that time in your life, um, what did you learn about coaching, leadership, all of that that you really um, feel was most valuable? I didn't know it at the time, but I started going on a, a people-centric journey back then. So when I was a coach, I was realizing I had to modify my style to get through to these different athletes. And first, firstly, Olympic, uh, Olympic hopefuls, Olympic athletes, such passionate people, they're, they're grinding to get, you know, a quarter percent better at something. They're working so hard. Their, their opportunity costs are so high because they're giving up so much to be doing what they're doing. So it is you know, it's a, it's a passionate environment. Uh, it's inspiring, but they are often quirky. They are, they are tip, you know, I'm stereotyping, but there are a lot of quirky athletes out there. So if you want to connect with them in a meaningful way, you have to modify yourself and figure out how to connect. And so I make this analogy, you know, a good teacher teaches something one way, a great teacher modifies themselves so that they can connect with their student. I think the same is true for managers. A good manager manages one way successfully. A great manager can modify themselves for their people or the situation so that they can get the best out of their people. And it's really important because all people are different. How do I make sure that I'm getting the best, whether I'm managing down, across, or up? And managing up, don't forget, is super important. This is, you keep keep your bosses happy uh, is, a, is a good secret to, uh, a healthy long career, but and you know across when you don't have the power and authority and you need to influence appropriately, modifying yourself for that situation is so important. So I went on that that journey. I didn't know it at the time. I I, I sort of know it now, and very thankful for that opportunity to 
get started on that pathway. It seems like it would have been such a great experience, like you said, to work with people who they just, they wanted to be the best at their craft. And um, my husband and my father-in-law both do a lot of sailing. So I've been on, been on the sailboat with them a couple of times. It's kind of scary, but... <laughs> I almost got thrown off. One of the ropes caught my foot and I almost did a somersault off the boat one time, but um, got to hand it to that sport. It takes a lot of energy to make that happen. Well, I'm glad you weren't hurt. And uh, yeah, sailing is an interesting sport. I think what one of the most interesting things, one of the oldest athletes for the U.S. was a star sailor from Louisiana, hmm. um, John Dane. And he competed in the Olympics in his 50s. Hmm. And it's still very physical. Um, mm -hmm. So, but it's not physical like, you know, you become 32-year-old swimmer and you're like, you're, you're over the top. You can't carry the times as the, the younger. But it's not, it's not like that. There's more brain power in it. And I, I think from that perspective, a little like golf, you don't fall off the, you don't fall off the, the leading edge as mm -hmm. fast as other sports. Um, which it seems like everyone else does except for Tom Brady. Yeah. Um, yeah. For some reason, I think he, I think he must've sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads about aging. Um, must we'll have. See. Absolutely. I know that guy just seems to be a powerhouse and keep going. Crazy. I don't know how he, how he does it, but um, my final question for you, Mike, is what does leadership mean to you? I think, I think leadership is, is about getting the most out of your people so that you, you, can, you can really leverage yourself. So you have these things on the front of your t-shirt that obviously you're good at. You wouldn't be, have given the job if you didn't have that. How do you make sure you get the most out of your people? Because you wanna cultivate your people to, to take over your job so that you can work on the next thing. And I, I think really great managers, really great leaders are really successful at getting the most out of their people, leveraging themselves and getting the succession planning going where people start doing, I, I've told my, my, my recent promote into a chief growth officer, I'm like, I want you to do my job. That way I can do the next thing for the company. And you're like, wait, you want me to take the job of CEO? And I'm like, yeah, eventually I want you to do that. And I at least take away the work and then pretty soon, they won't need me as CEO and they'll, the heir apparent will already be there. So I, I think great leadership, um, you know, is, is about that process. Now we, we could talk about the time frame, um, and I'm not trying to get everyone to, you know, bail on their jobs and find another one, but I, I do think it's about leveraging themselves. Hmm. I love that. You should always be working yourself out of your own job. I think that's really valuable. Um, I know I've always enjoyed um, being able to help others do tasks that I'm doing so that I can also, like you mentioned, move on to doing different things. And that constant growth, I think, is really appealing as well. Um, healthy, yeah. Yep. I appreciate that perspective, Mike. Well, this has been so much fun. So many great nuggets during our time here today. I feel like we could talk for probably another hour about all of these things, but I guess in closing, um, if anyone um, is wondering more about you and what you do, um, you know, is there any way that we can support you in your journey? 
Well, certainly, if you'd like to find out more about uh, the book, The Science of Dream Teams, uh, dreamteams.io is the website for, for the book. Uh, there's a sample chapter, and there's all sorts of ways to purchase uh, or bulk buy and do book club stuff, uh, as well as you can take uh, some assessments there if you're interested. Um, there certainly is the predictiveindex.com slash learn where you can learn more about talent optimization. There's tons of free content. Um, you, Kelsey, are certified in talent optimization in several of the disciplines and people can go on that journey to, to learn how to be you know, a much better people, people leader. Um, and we have a, our Optima conference in the spring. Uh, if you go to optimaconference.com, uh, you, you'll see that there's going to have fantastic speakers. Uh, James Clear, uh, the author of Atomic Habits, is going to be one of our keynotes. Um, so there's some, some, some great, great ways to get in touch with either me or the Predictive Index and some great content. But uh, thank you for the opportunity, Kelsey. I've really enjoyed connecting with you today and speaking about talent optimization. Absolutely. And I will include some of those links in our show notes as well. So thank you for all of that, Mike. This has been so fun. Um, and to all of you listening, we appreciate you tuning in and hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you.